jam a little bit, uh, feel a little insecure by the welcome that Preston got when he got up here. It was just, just <laughs> hooping and hollering, and then you get up, and then I get up, and it's like, you know, they were, the, they were like the serious, the, the serious ones here. So anyway, my name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, wow! Well, I was kind of, I was kind of fit fishing for that one, huh? No, that didn't count. That didn't count. That was, that was manipulation. Um, I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're a visitor with us, we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, we're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning um, worshiping with us. And we're continuing on in our series where we're walking through the Gospel of John. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, once again, like we say every week, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that um, you have chosen to reveal yourself in your word. You've spoken to us in your word. And so when we open the, the word and we teach and we preach and all the things we do regarding your word, we don't have to, to, to come up with something new. We don't have to come up with something unique necessarily because your words are life and they're in your word. And so um, our, our job is to teach and explain and, and also to receive your word like it is your very word. So I pray this morning that we would receive your word, that you would change our minds, you would change our hearts, our desires, um, and then change the way we live when we leave this place as a result of, of just hearing your word and taking in your word during this time. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So John 3.16, right? You probably heard it when Jay read it and you're like, oh, that, that sounds familiar. Or if you've been in church at any length of time, or maybe even if you've never been in church this may be one of those verses that you've at least seen the reference to if you haven't heard the whole verse. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said about this, pat, this, this, this verse that this is the gospel in miniature. Basically what he was saying, if, if, if you could boil down the gospel to one kind of sentence or statement, this is it, John 3, 16. So it's no wonder that it's a popular verse. It's no wonder that you see references to it all over the place. And I have a few up here. Probably if any of you have ever watched a sporting event on live TV, oftentimes Behind the goalposts, behind the basketball goal, you'll see these signs, John 3.16. So if you didn't know what those were, that guy looks depressed, probably because he's, he's a Mets fan, that's probably why. Um, but yeah, he's not really excited about it right now. Timmy T, we all know Timmy Tebow. Um, yeah, this one right here, I don't think this is real. I tried to do some background work on it, and I, I believe that is photoshopped. Um, but nonetheless, it's kind of a, yeah, he's, he's going all out there. Um, in and out, if you didn't know, on the bottom of the in and out cups, John 3.16. This is cute, right? I'm not sure if I'd put it on a, the puppy. I don't know how the puppy comes into that. Now, freezer right here. So this guy, this is the guy that, that supposedly started the whole John 16 showing up in public pl uh, craze, right? It's probably the I think it's 70s or 80s. He, you know, puts this wig on, or maybe that's hair dye, I don't know, but he, like, attracts attention to himself so people can see the verse. Um, and the next one, people have made fun of this guy over the years. Um, obviously, Simpsons, Simpsons took a shot at him there, uh, down in the bottom right hand quarter, and probably because he, this guy ended up um, going crazy 
thinking the world was going to end. He took hostages, and now he's in prison, okay? So we don't want to, we don't really, <laughs> I mean, but he was the guy who started the John, John 3.16 craze, and people have taken up that and kind of gone forward with that, okay? Um, which is why the Simpsons probably took, you know, obviously took a shot at him. Um, so here's the point, though, right? Here's the point. Like, we see this everywhere, and so it's important for us as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, to, to stop and to really dig into this verse. What does it mean? What is it saying? Obviously, it's about God's love, which is probably why it's gotten so much traction. Um, but even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think this is one of those verses that you should understand at least what it says. You should understand when you hear the reference, John 3, 16, this is what people are referring to. But before we get into that verse, I just want to go two verses back to what we, the two verses we covered last week. It says, Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus, and at the end of that conversation that we looked at last week, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This follows the conversation where Jesus is explaining and introducing this idea to Nicodemus of born again. What does it mean to be born again? Born again inside of a person and God, God's spirit kind of brings new life to a person. This is how someone becomes a Christian. This is what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus. And then he ends with this reference back to the Old Testament in Numbers 21. We, lo we looked at it last week, but just a quick review of that. This is where... Um, God had judged his people, Israel, and um, with getting bit by snakes. And the venom of snakes was killing people. And so he said, okay, Moses, fashion a bronze serpent on the little stick. You hold it up so everybody can see over everybody and see the serpent. And if you look at the, if you look at the serpent on the bronze stick, then you'll be saved. The venom will not be able to hurt you anymore. It's a really weird story, but it's foreshadowing and looking ahead to Jesus, because Jesus even says here, in the same way, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is taking that story and showing why that story even exists in the Old Testament. It's because it's foreshadowing how Jesus would die. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. And if we look to him and look to the grace and mercy of God found in the, cr in the cross, in Jesus' death, we would be saved. The venom or the sin, our sin would be taken away from us. So that's the context. We've just heard that, and we get into John 3.16 now, and, and there's a little bit of a disagreement, not, not a lot, because there's, there's clear evidence, I think, to one side, but it, the question is, is Jesus still talking here to Nicodemus in John 3.16, or is this John, the writer of the gospel, actually kind of reviewing or reflecting on the conversation that Jesus just had with Nicodemus? Quotation marks didn't exist in the, um, in, in the, in the original languages, so the, the, the translators actually have to put in the quotation marks. But most people think Jesus is done talking to Nicodemus in verse 15, and now John, the writer, is reflecting on this conversation that Jesus just had because it's important, right? And this verse comes right after that. It's important to, to see that context. This verse just isn't floating in the middle of the Bible, how we often hear it um, referenced. It, it is in a context here. And, and remember, John... John the writer is very intentional. Anytime he puts something in his book, he's doing it in an intentional way and a really a theological purpose behind it. Not necessarily chronological, but theological. So there's a reason John put this really important verse about God's love right here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this verse down, spend most of our time on this verse, breaking it down into 
really phrases so we can understand it better. So the first phrase we come to is for God, right? And this for God is for is a connecting word to the previous passage or verses. So for or because or coming out of that idea, God Okay? God's, the, God's the, the subject here, right? He's the subject of um, this, this sentence, right? And um, uh, F.E. Um, F. Bruner, I believe is his first name, Bruner, commentator, says, it, just in this passage, John moves from anthropology, so at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, anthropology, which is a study of humans, Nicodemus and Jesus go back and forth on that, to pneumatology, which means the study of the Holy Spirit, which brings new birth, right? We looked at that last week, to Christology, which verses 14 and 15 show us, and now to theology, which is the study of God. So John is packing all of this really deep teaching into these into these verses, which is why this passage is so important for us to really understand. So again, he's for us connecting back to the previous idea, and, and God's the subject here, okay? God so loved the world. Now, the world, what, what does he mean by world? This, this word cosmos is used 186 times in the Bible, 186 times, and every time, always, it's used in a negative or sinful way. Or, or it's talking about how, how, how dark the world is, how sinful the world is. It's not, it's not ever used in just a neutral kind of geographical term. It's always used um, in, in the, the kind of darkness that is found as it relates to sin in the world. Right? And so it's not talking about size. It's talking about the intensity, how low God stooped. So God so loved the world that he, he stooped this low to love the world, to engage the world. This is the, the, the kind of the, the feeling that we should have when we read this. Next, that he gave his only son. So we're gonna, we're gonna come back to love and son here in a moment, and that we'll, we'll spend a lot of time there. But if we keep going, it says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? So whoever is wide, there's no distinctions, means all kinds of people from any kind of background, from any ethnic background, from any time period, from any place in the world. Whoever, there's, 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 there's no distinction there. But the next word says whoever believes in him. So there's the qualifier, right? It's wide, but you have to believe, right? And it's just not believe in general, right? Believe a little bit, believe a little bit about God, believe a little bit about the Bible. No, it's believe in him. Jesus. So it's whoever, it's wide, but then it gets narrow because it is whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. So it's wide, and that's, that's, that's the, the beauty of this, right? The beauty of God's grace and mercy is that anybody can get in on it. Like anybody can get in on it. Anybody is, is, can do this. However, it's those who believe in him um, that it's that it's a kind of nuance there for us to really understand. Now, this is exclusive. It should feel exclusive, right? There are, not, there are not multiple roads that lead to Jesus. There's not more than one way to God. And, and, and really, if we just step, we should step back and kind of flip this and say, we often kind of are, are bummed or we, we, we wrestle with the fact that is Jesus the only way and how can all the other religions or belief systems be wrong? That's a legitimate question to wrestle with, right? Because this is very, in a very exclusive statement amongst other ones in the scriptures. But really the, the, the amazing thing, the astonishing thing should be, how is there even just one way? 
How, 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 how could God even make one way to save rebellious, sinful people who do not care about him, who could care nothing for him, who turn their back on him? We see this in God's people over and over and over in the Old Testament, turning their back on God, who gave them life, who gives them all these things. We're guilty of the same thing. So the question should not be, well, how can there only be one way? The question should actually be, I cannot believe that there even is a way. Can we believe that God made a way for sinful human beings to be returned to him, to be reconciled to him, to be brought into relationship with him? That next word, believes, is a, um, is a present tense participle, meaning that it's an action that begins in the presence, the present, but has continuous action into the future. So it's this, not only believing at one time, but it's whoever believes in him, and then a continuous action. So those of you who believed many, many years ago, that belief is still there, right? It's still believing. You're still believing in him. There's this ongoing trust. And then in him, that in is really important. Prepositions are important in the scriptures, right? It's not believe about him. It's not believe some things about him. It's not, it's not believing an idea or some principles about him. It's believing in him. Like, like in, in, you could actually translate that into him. Not only just believe in him, but you're believing into him. Like you can't get any like deeper or near for like a, a preposition than this, than what John's trying to highlight here. And the result or the purpose of sending God's son is eternal life, which is how this, this, this verse ends, eternal life. Obviously, there's other things, being brought back into a relationship with God, being adopted as sons and daughters, being called heirs and having access to the, the things and the, and the riches of the Father that Ephesians talks about, abundant life that is talked about in the Gospels. All those things are part of the purpose of God sending Jesus. But in this particular verse, John says the purpose is for eternal life. The purpose is for everlasting life in the presence of God in heaven. Okay, so let's now go back to God's love, because this is the, the most important thing about this passage. God is the subject, but his action, the thing he does that we should kind of that our that our that our eyes should attract to is his love. This is his action. This is the verse. So God so loved the world. So we experience love all the time. We experience all the time, love all the time. If you're married, you experience that. If you have kids, you experience that. If you watch any kind of TV or read any books, you experience love. You, you see love. This, like, we're inundated with kind of stories and ideas of love. Now, those are, there's different truths and different degrees of that and different realities of that, right? Um, but all of us, um, all these loves that we come into contact with are just echoes of the true love that is displayed by God for us. So all the expressions of love we see pale in comparison. Even the deepest, most intimate love between spouses or between a mother or dad and their children, right? Those things pale in comparison to the love that God has for us, right? And here's some characteristics about why is that love different? What's so great about God's love? Well, number one, it's unearned. We've done nothing to earn God's love. Like nothing. We're, we, we, we were sinful, rebellious people who wanted nothing to do with God before God um, pursued us and saved us. So we can't take, we weren't lovable. We weren't beautiful. 
We weren't those kinds of things as it relates to morality and God's holiness. Yes, we're image bearers of God, so we have value and worth, but as far as being able to be saved by God and our sin taken away, there was nothing we brought to the table. There was nothing that we added to our salvation. And we think about that, that, that picture that Jesus gave Nicodemus of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness back in Numbers 21. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Jesus, all, think of all, you know, all the sermons, all the pictures we've seen of the crucifixion and the horror that Jesus went through. The pain that Jesus went through. That was all motivated by God's love for us. And we did not deserve it. And we did nothing to earn that love. You have the classic love stories, like, uh, like Romeo and Juliet, right? Think of Romeo and Juliet. Like Romeo, even in that story, this love, even though it ends in this like kind of it's tragic, but it's just like, oh, they, they loved each other so much, right? Well, think about how it starts. Like Romeo was into another girl. He loved another girl, and then he sees Juliet, and so quickly he changes his affection from one girl to another girl. Like it seems like a very shallow kind of love that it started out there, right? And Juliet is kind of scheduled, or she has this, this marriage set up by her family, and she doesn't want any part of that. So she kind of sees Romeo as a way out, a way out of this marriage. Yes, she, she loved him, but it was, there was a string attached to it. She was benefiting from Romeo. Romeo was able to pull her potentially out of this arrangement that they had, their, her, her parents had for her. And then they both just, part of this story is kind of wanting the forbidden fruit, right? Their parents said no, but that, that forbidden fruit caused them to want each other more. Yes, this is a form of love, but it pales in comparison to the love that God has for us, right? And that is because there's strings attached, right? There was something about, even if it's beauty that attracts two people together, then you, 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 the, the string attached was beauty, Right? If it's your personality, if it's, your, if it's what, what, um, what, the way you feel about someone when you're around someone, you're still saying, well, it's the feeling or it's the personality. There's something about that other person, and I know it's not earning in that classic sense of the word, but there was something about that person that drew you to them. So in, in a sense, they did earn that love from you. And some of you, if Romeo and Juliet... Isn't your thing? Um, I promise you the kind of love that's shown in the question, will you accept this rose, is not love, right? Okay, if you're giggling in here, then we'll have some meetings set up this week to talk about your choice of TV consumption, right, if you got that joke. So um, these love stories and most, if not all, the other ones that we see are our love is earned. But again, in this scenario, we were unlovable. We didn't earn anything. We didn't deserve it. We, while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, is what Scripture tells us. We couldn't give anything to earn God's love. So his love is unearned. His love is also sacrificial. right? He demonstrates his love in action. And what an action it was. He gave his, only, his one and only son. And uh, uh, translations, some translations, older translations, or you can also translate begotten son. Yes, we're sons and daughters of God when we're brought into his family, but there's a, there's a different kind of relationship that God has with Jesus, and that's that word begotten, one and only son. There's something different about Jesus and how he relates to God as father. This is who God gave up for undeserving Sinners like you and me. Listen to Romans 8, 32. 
It's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. This is Paul really using logic here to, to really help us feel the love of God has for us and change the way we live. Verse 32, he who did not, God, that's the he, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Paul is saying, what is the greatest thing someone could put forward to give up for another person? It's their children. It's their children. So if God gave up the most precious, greatest thing to him, how will he not also give us, a, give us all things? Right? Like, like if he's already given that for us, we must be valuable enough for God to give us all things. This is mind-blowing when you think about it. And in the context of Romans 8 there, Paul's trying to, he's talking about perseverance. He's talking about overcoming difficulties. He's talking about living this Christian life with God's love for us in mind so that we can overcome everything, anything. So we can have confidence. So we can have those kinds of things that changes us as a follower of Jesus. Now, one kind of clarification that we really need to get here because I think it's, it's sneaky is that I think a lot of us think or maybe our minds just kind of drift into this place, that God loves us because Christ died for us. And that's not true. God does not love us because Christ died for us. God loved us so much, therefore Christ died for us. You see the difference? Like, sometimes we get this in our mind where that, like, the deepest thing that happened was Jesus' death. And so that's the most, that's the foundational thing is Jesus' death. And so we think, well, of course God mu- must love us. Like, he's like kind of holding his nose when he thinks about it. He's like, yeah, I guess I love him because Jesus died for them. No, no, no. God loves us. He sets his heart on us. He sets his mind on us. He loves us. Therefore, he sends his only begotten son to die for undeserving people like you and I. That's an important distinction. His love is the foundational thing. And then what comes out of his love is sending Jesus to die for us. Another way to say it is love is not the consequence of the incarnation. It's the reason for the incarnation. Love is at the core of who God is. I think sometimes we have this view that God's just mad at us. He's like just this angry man in the sky, and he's mad at us. And Jesus is the hero because he took kind of God being mad at us um, kind of away, so Jesus is the one we should focus on. Now, there's a lot of truth in that, but God wasn't mad at us. His wrath was poured out on sin. His, what he's angry at is, is sin, not necessarily us. That's where his wrath comes out. He's protecting his holiness. He's, he's punishing sin, okay? But God loves us. This verse could not be any clearer. God loves us. Did Jesus die as Jesus' hero? Absolutely, I'm not saying that. But God is love, and he sent Jesus in a heroic, loving act to die for sinful people like you and I. So God's not this angry, just man that, that Jesus is appeasing with his death. God loves us. It is foundational. Listen to John Calvin in his commentary on this, this verse, in his commentary. This mode of expression, however, may have may appear to be at variance with many other scriptures, kind of what I just talked about, which lay, which lay in Christ the first foundation of the love of God to us, and which suggests that apart from Christ, we are hated by God. But we ought to remember what I've already stated, 
that the secret love which the heavenly Father loved us in himself is higher than all other causes. We are so very dear to God that on our account, he did not even spare his only begotten son, such as the fervor of the love of God towards us. The son's mission was a consequence of God's love. His love is not vague. It's not sentimental. It's not just in words. God's love is, is it's, it's, uh, it's costly. It's, it's, he put it into action, and he loves us. We just need to maybe, you know, some of you just need to hear that and believe that. He loves you. He loves you. He really, really does. And because he loves you, you have the ability to love him. <clears throat> Scriptures tell us that we love because he first loved us. We can love other people unconditionally because he first loved us. We can love him because he unconditionally first loved us. We can love our enemies, as Jesus calls us to do, because he first loved us. And all of that was undeserving. Let's quickly look at the rest of the passage to kind of let John kind of tease this out for us. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it seems as John's writing this, he's, he's probably in, in, anticipating this question. Well, what, what happens if you don't believe? Right? Like what happens? It seems like Jesus coming into the world was bad news for people. That's the way it seems, right? And that may be an effect of things, but what John's sh- showing here in this verse is God's intention and purpose of sending Jesus was purely to save sinners. He, he sent Jesus into the world to save the world, not condemn the world. And this purpose is revealed in the cross. Um, he's not judging people in the present because he's giving people time to repent. God's slow to, slow to anger. He's, he's long-suffering. He wants as many people to repent as possible before their death. God's goal has always been salvation. And so God shouldn't be blamed for, sins, um, for humanity's sin problem. Um, yes, some people will be condemned because Jesus came. But this isn't the reason why Jesus came. He wasn't up there saying, well, these, these people need to be punished, so I'm going to send Jesus so they won't believe in him. No, he sent Jesus to save the world. This is what was sent for him. This is, this is why uh, John is laying out Jesus came. He, God, God sent him to save the world, not to condemn the world. He continues to explain this, though. Verse 18. This is how the world now reacts to, to Jesus. Whoever believes in him, again, that's the condition. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus dying does not automatically bring salvation. That's something called universalism, and that is not, we believe that's not biblical, right? Jesus dying does not automatically bring salvation. And John qualifies that now again, again with believe. You have to believe. Um, but he's saying if, if, if human beings choose to not love him, to not believe in him, choose to remain in the darkness, there will be condemnation. And even that, that, that language there is condemned already. It's kind of interesting. Like he, he's already condemned them. And, I, and most commentators think John is saying there that if you're apart from Jesus, even when you're still alive, there's some measure of condemnation upon you because you're missing out. 
You are missing out on a relationship with God. You're missing out on having your sins forgiven, your shame taken away, your guilt taken away. So most commentators think that the, the condemnation has already started if you haven't believed in Jesus because you're missing out on so much. Now, it comes to f- fulfillment and the fullness once you die or Jesus returns. That's when it will be brought to the fullness of that. Okay, so the, the, what John is wanting us to see here, and I think even Jesus' kind of urgency with Nicodemus and how he talks to him is that um, you, you, you need to believe now. Like, don't wait. There's urgency here. Don't wait any longer. Don't be separated any longer on this earth from God. Believe. What, and, and Jesus would say, what, what more do I need to do, especially after the cross and the resurrection, if Jesus was here, what more do I need to do for you to believe in me? Like, what more? God has sent me when you were uh, uh, unwilling to, to love him and follow him and, and rebellious. I've died. I've come back from the dead. I've ascended back to heaven. I've sent my spirit to empower believers here on earth. What more do I need to do? I can imagine Jesus saying that. And I think that's the spirit John's trying to get across in this passage. Verse 19. And this judgment, the light, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world it kind of echoes there the first part of John 1. If we remember in John 1, we talked about the light and how John uses that. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, John touches on our, our sinfulness here, our depravity, right? People, um, people loved the darkness, John says, loved it. Not just accidentally stumbled into it or happened to, to, to just fall into it. No, they loved the darkness. People love the darkness rather than the light. So when somebody rejects Jesus, they're rejecting, they're, they're rejecting light, and they're choosing to remain in the darkness. And so the real judgment here is that we are deeply flawed, and our preference is to remain in the darkness over the light. Like We would rather stay where we're at in darkness rather than set our affections on Jesus and love Jesus. One pastor says it like this. We humans did not simply choose one option rather than the other, neutrally, like two were like set out before us. We have seen the light that came blazing into the world, and we turned our backs. The greatest light that ever came into the world, it came. John 1 says he came into the world. God became flesh to dwell among us, and we turn our backs on him to choose to remain in the darkness. Verse 20. Whoever who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What this is saying, two people can hear the same message at the same time. One believes and one doesn't. One chooses to remain in the darkness, one chooses to come to the light. And what really John is getting at here that we need to understand is that our core issue is, is love which goes back to the whole, what this whole passage is about. We love something more than God. We love something more than Jesus. Especially those of us who, don't, who aren't Christians, this is kind of the foundational issue with not being reconciled to God. But even as followers of Jesus, what gets us in trouble, what steals our joy, what robs us of the fruit of the Spirit, is when we love other things more than God. When we, when we love other things more than his presence. We love, love other things more than his word. This is what gets us in trouble. The issue is love. It says some people, don't, they don't just not love God. They actually hate God. They hate the light. 
They don't come into the light because they don't want their sin exposed. And we need a new heart. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, remember, this comes out of that passage. Jesus told Nicodemus, how are you born again? How do you come into the, the kingdom? Well, you're born again, right? The, the spirit does something inside of you, and then you believe. He says that at the end of in, in, uh, verse 15 there that we read earlier. The belief is what gives you into, what, what makes you have eternal life. And again, John is saying that again, but that doesn't come without a new nature. It doesn't come without our hearts being changed first. So where do we go from here? How do we apply this, right? Well, I think we can bring some out of that previous, what we talked about last week and how we applied last week. We need to look to Jesus. We need to trust him. Like the serpent was lifted up, we need to set our sights on Jesus and trust him and believe in him. You think about this idea of trust and belief all throughout the scriptures, right? In Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden, what's God saying to them? Trust me. Just trust me, don't, don't eat from that one. You've got the whole, the whole garden to eat from and enjoy, but just don't eat from that one. Just trust me. It'll go better for you if you don't do that. Think about Noah. The ark? Build an ark? What are you talking about? You're crazy, God. Just trust me, Noah. Trust me. If you want to escape judgment, trust me and build the ark. To Abram, trust me. Leave your people. Trust me. Put, put Isaac upon, the, put Isaac upon the, the wood prepare him for a sacrifice. Every time I read that passage to the boys in Jesus' storybook Bible where, where God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, I'm like, man, this is brutal, right? Reading to my kids, and this story is basically like telling Abraham, yeah, yeah, go, go sacrifice Isaac because I told you to do it, basically. And Isaac is like, dad, where's the, where's the animal, right? And our kids would be saying the same thing. Hey, where, where, what are we going to kill up there? And yet, and Abraham's in the middle of tying him down to the kindling, preparing for that. And obviously, we know that God provides a ram. And this is the love, though, that God wants to show us, that God actually left his son up on the wood. He left him there to die for us. There wasn't a ram that came into the picture when Jesus was on the cross. God left him up there. And so when we, when we see these things, we need to trust him. God, to the Israelites going in, in the desert with Moses, trust me. And he's saying that to us now in his word. Trust me. Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that I want, what I want, I want what's best for you? If you don't, I gave my only son for you. How will I not also give you all things? And again, think of Jesus on the cross. The nails weren't the thing keeping him there. We often think that, well, he was stuck there, right? He, no, he could have come down in a heartbeat and wiped out everyone, even the people who knew it. Your God, come down from the, the, the cross. But he did. What kept him up there? What kept him to the cross? Love. His love kept him on the cross and obedience to his father. And he knew his father's heart and the love that God had for people, so he stayed on the cross. So the message for you, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, believe. Believe. Trust him. Trust God. He's good. He loves you. He loves sinful people. He loves people who do things wrong. He loves people who've done bad things. He loves people that have wasted 20, 30, 40, 50 years of their life, if that's what you're thinking. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. So believe. Trust in him. Say, God, I need you in my life. That's our expression of what's happened inside of you. That's expression of our belief. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus... Um, have humility, right? This should, once again, show us that 
we did nothing to earn this. Our, our, our belief is not from our superiority. It's not from our intellect. It's not because we've read the right things or believe the right things or we're smart or we're born into a certain family. No, 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 no. That's not why we're saved. It should humble us to hear how God has loved us. But it should also give us confidence and boldness that, yes, God loves me. Yes, he loves me. I know that because of Jesus. I know that because of what Jesus did on my behalf. That's how I know John 3.16 is believable, and it's true. And again, as we're sharing our faith and evangelism with people who don't know Jesus, this is our only hope, right, that God loves sinners and he creates new life. So we talk about him. We share our faith. We share our story. We tell people to believe, and we pray like crazy that God would save that they would believe. This is how we do evangelism. This is how we talk about Jesus. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, give him glory. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt his love. Have confidence in that. I want to read Romans 8, 32 over us again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Hopefully that moves us towards him, causes us to pursue him, Right now, our spiritual practice that we're talking about as a church is time in the Word. Why, why, why should we spend time in the Word? To experience His love, to be reminded of His love, to remember that how will He not also graciously give us all things? That's why we spend time in His Word, to believe that, to firm that up deep inside of us so we can live with freedom and joy and peace and hope and all of those things. Let's pray. Father, once again, I'm thankful for your word. I pray that as this, this verse puts us to a decision, it's clear that there's, there's two responses to something like this. There's two responses to God's love. It's believe, come to the light, or it's remain in darkness, kind of continuing going your own way that you've been going on. I pray that if, I ha if there are people in here that don't know you, maybe they know about you, but they don't really have a relationship with you, I pray that you would give new birth today. You would create born-again people today. For those of us who are believers, I pray that you would renew us, give us new passion, give us new desire because of your love. We love you because you first loved us, period. So pray that we would think about your love. We would dwell in your love. We would spend time in the Word so we can experience that love in a, in a, in a day in and day out basis. I also want to pray. I didn't pray for this at the beginning, but I want to pray for just um, Christians around the world. But right now, the things that's right in front of us is the conflict going on in Ukraine. And I pray for peace such an evidence of, of um, just sin and brokenness and the inability of people to not get along. And the, the play that out far enough, you get war. I pray for peace to reign in that, in that area. I pray for the believers, not only in Ukraine, but also in Russia. They would continue to look to you to talk about you, to preach your gospel, to trust in you. He would protect them, give them boldness to preach the word 
in a very, very difficult time and place. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.